Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's 35 seconds before 4 o'clock and it's Jan Bartlett with you until 5.30 this afternoon with Tuesday Home Time. Today, all there is to know about Melanesia and the role of the Melanesian Spearhead Group. I'll be speaking with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. Graham Dunstan, who calls himself a nomad, but he's also a long-time peace activist, is in Rockhampton for the Talisman Sabre. And I spoke to him earlier this morning outside the courthouse where a number of people are facing charges of trespass. Brian McKinlay, historian and author, and the demise of Libya. But first... Let's hear how Mr Kevin Healy is going this week. A week, journalist, and when, as we know, the naive Greek people defied their caring business class and the International Monetary Profits Fund, the World Profits Bank, the Euro Profits Central Bank, and said no, showing how simple they are. As we said last week, the bloody people got it wrong again. They just can't seem to get democracy right. That despite the great benefits several years of austerity have brought them, the economy has contracted spectacularly, the debt has continued to explode, unemployment is at record levels, pensioners are living below the poverty line. The great practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all knew it was for their own good and a yes vote would have guaranteed them years more of the same yet the bloody silly voters voted no have no idea what's good for them myopiaopolis and their big supremo alaxa the surplus encouraged them to vote no encouraged myopiaopolis vote no i have called this referendum to let euro europe know we mean no and thus they voted no, and thus he voted yes. Al axed the surplus votes. And thus, as we have been quoting the International Monetary Profits Fund's Christine Lagarde the Wealthy, you can't have meaningful dialogue with people who don't do what you order them to do. A relieved Christine sighed this week. Now we can have the meaningful dialogue. And thus German chain seller Angela Merkey praised Alex for, for realising that, OK, a little bit of austerity, like reducing the below-the-poverty-line pension to even more below-the-poverty-line, no hope of economic growth or reducing the debt thanks to the wonders of neoliberal genius, higher unemployment, a few minor problems. The Greek austerity had done wonders for the German economy and the German banks, which are the same thing. And now that Mr. Anti-Austerity Alax has axed the myopiaopolis, no vote, and adopted the flogging off of state assets to the private sector, sorry, privatisation, a good word, the good news is the money raised from flogging off inefficient public assets to the super-efficient, lean, mean private sector will help the pensioners, I hear you say, help the unemployed, create jobs. Well... No, no, that money is earmarked to be handed straight to the banks. Alax obviously never considered nationalising the banks rather than denationalising everything else and giving it to the banks. So, Alax, what have you gained from making all these concessions? Gained. 
gained. Explain gained. Uh, could you just repeat the question? Suppose the only question we're left with is, why did he bother to call the referendum? Perhaps he's realised austerity is good for the masses. Listen to this big-time investment banker who this week nominated the Euro-profit central bank supremo Mario Draghi the poor down as the greatest central banker ever. He was just great for the, the masses, he said. Then he pointed out for him, masses meant market forces. Stuff people, unless they're good, rich and getting richer people. Well, true to his great knowledge of how the greatest little economic order of them all works, Mario was the strongest opponent of giving the draggy, the poor down Greeks any slack at all, because he knows they've been slack. Wonder if he's living below the poverty line. Or for that matter, the US of the UN of the US of the world investment banker, who reckons Mario's the greatest ever. Back here at the Kanga Mission, and I don't recall the caring business class mafia connections we mentioned last week getting a mention or a line in the Lord Rupert of Wapping Media. I might have missed it, but, well, they have more important things to do, like Socialist Party Supremo Brackett's temporary little Billy Shorten ambition being shortened recall at the Kanga Mission. Page after page after page, almost one page alone devoted to the hanging judge's attack on little Billy's credibility. Mr. Shorten Ambition, you are not giving my very, very, very close friend, the Crown Prosecutor, the answers we demand you give and which are in our final report. Although while such matters should not be the subject of a staged witch hunt primarily aimed at unions going about what unions should be going about, have to say Little Billy did provide them with a fair bit of ammunition. I have spent my whole life fighting for working people. He stated the obvious. I have spent my whole life fighting for working people. He restated the obvious. And in fighting for working people, obviously I have had to associate with and do deals with, uh, sorry, a deal with caring employers. In return, working people must thank little Billy every night. The Socialist Party's Disputes Tribunal threw out a complaint by former Maritime Union official Kevin Bracken against the former Minister for Fossils, Martin Cliché, saying, the tribunal saying, there must be room for debate and different views in the Socialist Party. And we consider that representing the fossil-caring employers, recommending that workers be crushed along with the fossil, fossil extractors, and appearing in caring business class election advertisements qualifies as debate and as different views. Marty said his views had always been known. At the end of the day, when the sun sets, looking through the window of opportunity... Well, it went on, but that's what he said, and I guess we have to agree. We've known his views for years. And as for the Socialist Party, his different views just mightn't be all that different. Don't suppose the thought of actually having a debate over something at the Socialist Party National Cure for Insomnia had anything to do with the decision. The thought, the terror... On fossils, the Minister for Hayseed and Sheepshit Barnacle also told us he too had fought his guts out for his Hayseed and Sheepshit Party constituency. I totally oppose this big coal mine thingy on prime farmland, Barnacle explained. Although I want to ensure the people I fought for that we have imposed the most stringent environmental conditions. 
No, it sounds silly, but the most stringent environmental condition would just possibly be to say no. It's always a worry when they say environmental damage will be minimal. Kind of implies there'll be, wait for it, environmental damage. But minimal, minimal. And after all, we are talking about old King Cole. And as Barnacle Supremo Tiny explained, Barnacle has a right to oppose as long as the mine goes ahead. As long as the mine goes ahead. After all, coal will lift the world out of poverty. Because there'll be no poverty when there's no world. Which shows Tiny does care about the poor. That looks like Tiny now. What, what's he doing? He's on this big draft horse like he's jousting. Good heavens, he's, he's charging at that windmill. He's knocked it over. Well, what's going on? It's ugly, and it doesn't deserve any government support. It doesn't deserve any government support. Uh, but it's renewable. It's an established industry. The renewable energy must stand on its own like beautiful old King Coal. Uh, yes, why do you support coal? For goodness sake, look at our government, the coal-ishan government. The socialists and the long-haired greenies won't let us destroy the fossil-destroying renewable investment lot, so we have to ensure it invests where it can do good for the world's poor, like burying your fossil head in the sand. Burying your fossil head in the sand. We have so much beautiful, lifting the world out of poverty, coal in true blue Aussie, we have declared it is obviously renewable energy. Obviously renewable energy. The socialists and the long-haired greenies are preventing the world's poor being lifted out of poverty. Sorry, I've got to move on. There's all those windmills, all those ugly, ugly windmills. Come on, Pancho, Sancho, whatever your name is, hand me my lance. And so Tiny and his lackey Sancho hunt the windmills right off to do their bit for the environment. Finally, readers of the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin would know that today the biggest story in the whole world is that a football coach fell off his bike in track. And I thought, what a delightful way to acknowledge former state big supremo, speaking of privatisations, Jeff Footinmouth, who also fell off his bike at the weekend but did no damage when he hit his head which is understandable, because what more damage could he do? But what a fine example of solidarity by James Heard of drugs. Uh, sorry, uh, supplements. But of course, Jeff was displaying remorse, clearly showing by example what he had done to the state when he was Big Supremo. And to his credit, he has since worked at addressing all that depression he created. One of those great ironies. Right up there with my favourite, the former Malvern Council naming the Harold Holt Memorial Swimming Pool. After the past two days, if the Greek people could afford a bike, we can be sure they'd head straight for the border. But thanks to the great practitioners, they can't. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy in fine form today. And I'm sure he'll be in fine form tomorrow at 9 o'clock for City Limits. This is the move. This is a Miraculous activist activity. Imagine this activist activity. The 5th Annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair will bring together an exciting range of independent booksellers, zinesters and activist groups. The book fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a program of workshops. Come along to celebrate books, pamphlets and zines, including radical fiction, the anarchist classics and cutting-edge radical writers from around the world. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking and to network with like-minded folks. 
It's free, and we also provide free childcare. It's all happening at the Abbotsford Convent on Saturday, August 8th from 10am till 6pm and with an after-party in a squatted space late into the night. Find out more at www.amelbournebookfair.org or find us on Facebook. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair, because another world is possible. The Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter. Journalist and researcher Nick McClellan has recently returned from the Solomon Islands where he attended the Melanesian Spearhead Group meeting. But before asking about the deliberations over those 10, 12 days, I asked Nick where the word Melanesia comes from. Well, it was a concept developed in the 18th century. There was a French explorer, Dumont de Ville, who, having travelled across the Pacific, noticed that there were different ethnic and cultural groups people of the eastern Pacific, uh, countries like uh, Tahiti, French Polynesia today, Tonga, Samoa and so on, were uh, culturally and ethnically different to people in the west, the islands closest to Australia, like today Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu and so on. There are cultural differences. So, for example, in Polynesia, uh, in the eastern Pacific, people have systems of hierarchy and indeed nobility, uh, even monarchy. And so the king of Tonga today still is the head of uh, constitutional government in Tonga. Tahiti had a monarch, Queen Pomare, during colonial times, uh, King Kamehameha in uh, Hawaii. Um, So the Polynesian uh, systems had systems of monarchy, of nobility, of hierarchy, and also one cultural grouping by and large. In contrast, the islands to the east of the Pacific were incredibly diverse. Today we know that Papua New Guinea has over 860 languages, so quite diverse cultural groupings. And um, although there are some chiefly systems in uh, Melanesia, they're, they're different. So de Monteville, in a speech to the Geography Society of Paris back in the, in the 1700s, drew a distinction between the area he called Polynesia, many islands, Micronesia, the small islands in the northern Pacific, and Melanesia, the Black Islands, and uh, the islands closest to Australia, to the north and east of Australia, were seen as quite savage um, in this ethnography. Uh, people saw that the uh, the Polynesian people had uh, hierarchies, monarchies, nobility, and the aristocrats of that time felt that they could uh, identify with that. Well, they were civilised, weren't they? Indeed, and so uh, we've seen, indeed, treaties between the colonial powers and the Polynesian peoples. The Treaty of Waitangi with the Maori people of New Zealand was a recognition that those chiefly systems fitted into a Western mindset in those days, indeed the feudal mindset of monarchy, of nobility, of commoners and so on. There's always been a a racist uh, perception that the people of Polynesia were beautiful, the Tahitian Vahine, the Hawaiian hula girl and so on, versus the rather uglier, uh, savage cannibals who lived in Melanesia. And that racism still continues today, and you find it often quite commonly in uh, tourism writing, in uh, political commentary and so on, uh, about the so-called Stone Age cannibals of Papua New Guinea and uh, Wawa the Cannibal Boy, you know, and all that sort of nonsense is is quite deep uh, in our imagery. And yet the Melanesian countries of the Pacific are the largest, uh, the biggest populations, and indeed um, economically often the the best off simply because uh, by uh, fault of uh, geography and tectonic plates, 
The islands to our north and our east are an incredible treasure trove of mineral resources spread right across Melanesia. You think of the Freeport McMoran mine in uh, West Papua, one of the largest gold and copper mines in the world. Uh, right through Papua New Guinea, we've had the Octedi mine, uh, uh, the Panguna mine in Bougainville, uh, um, enormous oil and gas reserves in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, uh, trillions of cubic uh, feet of, uh, of, of gas to be tapped. New Caledonia has a quarter of the world's nickel. So by fault of geography, um, these large societies, largest populations, Papua New Guinea, 7 million, uh, Fiji, 850,000, heading towards 900,000, Solomons, over half a million, um, compared to the smaller countries like Kiribati with 100,000 or Tuvalu with 10,000. These are the the most economically dynamic, but also the poorest countries in our region. You've been in the Solomons recently for the Malaysian Spearhead Group. What's the background to that group? Well, during the 1980s, the Melanesian governments, PNG, Solomon Islands and Vanuatu especially, were very much in solidarity with the Kanak independence movement of New Caledonia. We've talked many times on the program about the French rule in New Caledonia, the ongoing struggle for self-determination in the 80s at a time when the French were blowing up the Rainbow Warrior. This is just we've just had uh, last Friday the 30th anniversary of the the murder of Fernando Pereira and the blowing up of Rainbow Warrior in Auckland Harbour. The French were letting off nuclear weapons at Mururoa and Fangatofa. They deployed thousands of police and, and troops to New Caledonia. So the Melanesian Spearhead Group came together basically as solidarity with the FLNKS. But it soon branched to discuss other issues of common interest, particularly around trade and around uh, migration issues in Melanesia, around economic development and so on. And what we've seen over the well, now 27 years that the MSG has been in existence, it was formally created in 1988. It's grown, its membership has grown, so beyond PNG Solomon's Vanuatu, Fiji joined in 1990, and also the FLNKS, the Connect Socialist National Liberation Front, which is the independence movement in New Caledonia. Not the elected government of New Caledonia, but a non-state political movement, the FLNKS, is a full member of the MSG and has been um, since the 1980s. That five-member alliance really spans the, the countries to the north and east of Australia, and it's, it's a subgrouping. The main regional organisation is the Pacific Islands Forum, which has 14 independent states plus Australia and New Zealand. And the obvious dynamism of the MSG is Australia and New Zealand aren't members, so the Melanesian countries can decide on issues of common concern um, that affect their polity, their economy, their uh, society, without Australia trying to drive uh, the agenda. And where do their deliberations go? Do they become part of the forum? Well, they meet as the MSG and they have their own agenda, but decisions taken there carry into the forum. And because, as I say, you've got the largest economies, PNG and Fiji, uh, although Fiji, as we know, hasn't been active in the forum since the 2006 coup, uh, Fiji was suspended from all forum activities in 2009 and people are trying to woo Fiji back into the fold at the moment. But generally, you know, those big, bigger countries have quite a, a clout in the forum um, and we're seeing a, a growing shift where Papua New Guinea particularly, which has got a lot of revenues from its oil and gas, which is now coming online, uh, are managing to become a small aid donor to other small island states as well. And where does West Papua come into all this? Well, historically, West Papua 
you know, ethnographically has been part of uh, Melanesia. Yeah, I mean, the island of New Guinea was drawn and courted in colonial times with literally people drawing a line on the map. And you had the Dutch having the western half of the island of New Guinea and the British and the Germans dividing up. The Germans got New Guinea, the British got Papua. And over time, obviously, the territories of Papua and New Guinea came together as the independent nation-state of Papua New Guinea. But the western part of the island was under Dutch rule. And when Indonesia gained its independence in the 1940s, the Dutch maintained colonial control over what was then Dutch New Guinea as the rest of the Dutch East Indies became Indonesia. Um, And some Indonesian nationalists acknowledged that uh, West Papua, what we call today West Papua, was was a distinct part separate from the rest of Indonesia. But other Indonesians talked about from Sumatra to, to, to Merauke that they wanted all of the Dutch colonial presence. And so as countries moved after the Second World War towards decolonization, Dutch New Guinea was part of that same process. And uh, you know, right through the 50s, there were connections with the rest of the Pacific Islands. Um, in 1950, the first South Pacific Conference, which brought together island leaders uh, to move towards economic and social development, there were representatives of Dutch New Guinea. And Nicholas Joe and uh, Marcus Koshepo uh, represented Dutch New Guinea at this founding meeting of the South Pacific Conference, which later became the South Pacific Commission and one of the main regional organisations. There were representatives of the Dutch New Guinea churches at the uh, meeting of missions and churches in Malur in 1961, and that was the founding meeting of the Pacific Conference of Churches, which is the main ecumenical body linking churches right across the region. So the Dutch Protestant churches, particularly and Catholics, were represented at that founding meeting in 1961. There were West Papuan students studying medicine at the Fiji School of Medicine. When I lived in Fiji in the late 90s, there were still a couple of old blokes there who'd studied in the 60s and then uh, had stayed there when Indonesia took over. Um, The history of Indonesia in 1962 under the New York Agreement was given administration. Uh, There was supposed to be a proper referendum on self-determination, but uh, Indonesia held the so-called act of free choice in 1969 with about 1,025 people voting to stay as part of Indonesia. But, you know, the Dutch New Guinea had been part of the wave of decolonisation in the early 60s that we saw all around the world in 1960. Um, 17 African countries gained their independence. The United Nations put some teeth into resolutions that they've had since the founding calling for decolonisation. And resolutions 1514 and 1541, the famous decolonisation resolutions, they created the Committee of 24, the Special Committee on Decolonisation. And so the West Papua nationalists ran up the flag in December 1961. 1961 was the first time the Morning Star flag was raised and people were saying, we want our independence. Remembering, of course, the next year, Samoa, Western Samoa, was the first Pacific Island country to gain independence. So Dutch New Guinea was part of this push for decolonisation in the early 60s that spanned right across the Pacific Islands region. Um, the Americans saw it coming. In 1959, they gave Hawaii statehood. Hawaii had been part of the U.S. Navy's administration. And uh, the Americans gave statehood to Hawaii, recognising this wave of decolonisation coming right across the Pacific. So that's why people in West Papua, the Melanesian population, say that culturally, ethnically, we're linked to the rest of Melanesia by uh, ethnographic and, and cultural practices. Politically, we're part of that move towards decolonisation that began in the 60s and continues to this very day. But that was broken 
and Indonesia's annexation, um, the act of free choice, the massive militarization that we saw, you know, the Suharto regime in 1965 that took over, the military regime that took over Indonesia, killing between half a million and a million people as they took over, horrific human rights violations at that time. The first foreign investment deal that the Suharto New Order regime signed was with Freeport McMurrin um, for the the mine in, in West Papua. And it's been a source of revenue for the military ever since. Timber, minerals, marble, a whole range of things. The Indonesian military has, you know, had enormous sway over policy over West Papua. There's been moves towards autonomy under some governments. In 2003, the Indonesian government created a special autonomy law as a way of staving off the demand for self-determination for independence from the indigenous population. But there's been bipartisan or you know, multi-party commitment to holding on to West Papua. The Indonesian military have their interests there. But successive governments have promoted uh, transmigration, indeed migration, of people from uh, other populous areas, Java, Sumatra, Flores, other places. Gradually, the indigenous Melanesian population of West Papua, which is now divided into two provinces, Papua and West Papua, have come under Indonesian influence and indeed are becoming a minority in their own land. And how has the Melanesian Spearhead Group addressed this issue of West Papua, Papua over the years? Well, for a long time they didn't want to talk about it. Papua New Guinea is one of the leading forces within the MSG and within the Pacific Islands Forum has really blackballed discussion on this for a long time. Um, PNG has the only land border in the Pacific and obviously there's been a lot of examples of Indonesian military forces uh, making incursions across the border, which, as I say, is a line drawn on the map uh, in very mountainous jungle terrain uh, in in central part of the island of New Guinea. They have allowed refugee camps to be set up in PNG, though, haven't they? They have. In the mid-1980s, um, there were um, thousands of people, some 12,000 people between 84 and 86, came across the border into uh, Papua New Guinea, fleeing from Indonesian military operations against the OPM, the Organisasi Papua Medeca, which is the guerrilla group which was fighting against um, um, Indonesian rule at that time. Thousands of people were put into unofficial camps and then PNG created a, a camp at East Arwen in Western Province, a Yawara camp, which is still there today. It still has a couple of thousand people there uh, who can't go back uh, for political or, or, or social reasons. So PNG's long had refugees coming across the border The Indonesians have been trying to influence politics in PNG for a long time. Um, There's a lot of talk of Indonesian money backing certain candidates and things. And there's growing business interests, particularly from politicians in the western province, uh, in uh, the West Sepik, which are the two major provinces bordering uh, uh, West Papua. Uh, There's a lot of interest in uh, transport and uh, other communications, uh, businesses, uh, agricultural businesses on both sides of the border and so on. So we're seeing uh, common interests uh, across the border from uh, people. And Indonesia has promoted that. Uh, One of Indonesia's tactics has been to promote so-called development all along the border, um, particularly with transmigrants back in the 60s and 70s and with ongoing migration, um, so that there's almost like a buffer zone along the border and that um, people from Java, from Sumatra, from other parts of Indonesia will be living along the border and uh, provide a buffer that might stop any sort of uh, Melanesian uh, uh, interests across the border. Well, what pressure has there been from within West Papua for the the group to actually 
do something about this and accept well, it's been them. happening for a long time and um you know, there were exiles going back to the 1960s, um, famously uh, Willy Zonganau and Clemens Runaweri. In 1969, two young men uh, tried to carry a petition from West Papuans to the United Nations saying, um, uh, we don't want to be part of Indonesia under this so-called act of free choice. They called it the act of no choice. So going right back to the 60s, there was opposition to Indonesian rule. Once uh, Clemens and Willie got across the border into what was then Australian Territory, Papua New and New Guinea, they were arrested by ASIO and detained on Manus. So the petition never got to New York. Um, Manus, uh, detention in Manus, ring a bell? Yeah, there's a long history of this that uh, Papuans and West Papuans know about um, that many Australians forget. That resistance continued. The OPM, as I say, as a guerrilla force, but also church leaders, intellectuals, students. There were moments where the West Papua nationalist movement had significant breakthroughs. In the aftermath of the collapse of the Suharto regime in 1998, the Asian economic crisis crashed the New Order regime and the fall of Suharto led to massive changes in Timor with independence in 1999, uh, the vote then and then full independence in 2002. There was a period known as the Papuan Spring in 2000 where a major congress brought together nationalist forces including the old OPM guerrillas and the newer generation of students, intellectuals, church leaders, women and so on. Uh, they elected the Papua Presidium and they reached out to the Pacific. In 2000 I was in Tarawa at the Pacific Islands Forum when uh, four West Papuans were part of the Nauru delegation um, and uh, for the first time ever, the Pacific Islands Forum discussed the issue. Australia and PNG had long blockaded any discussion within the forum, and, just, and that blockade continues today, with Australia very reluctant to talk about this issue of self-determination in West Papua, but it made a breakthrough then. But the Indonesian military cracked down at the time. Taiselaway, the leader of the Papua Presidium, was murdered by Indonesian soldiers in 2001, strangled to death. There was a massive crackdown on West Papua nationalists. More people fled into exile and so on. And uh, that moment, the so-called Papua Spring, was crushed by the Indonesian military, who had a lot to lose, even under the reformist government of Abdurrahman Wahid in Indonesia. Megawati Sukarnaputri, Indonesian nationalist who believes uh, that West Papua is part of Indonesia and always will be, led to crackdown during the mid-2000s. Um, but the West Papuans have never given up. People living in exile, campaigners like the late John Otto Andawame, Rex Wimikek and others have been lobbying for many years. And they had a breakthrough finally in 2013. The last Melanesian Spearhead Group Summit was hosted by uh, New Caledonia's FLNKS, the independence movement. And for a long time the FLNKS has been in solidarity with the West Papua nationalist movement. They're similar political movements struggling for self-determination. And so there was a natural empathy there. And against the concerns of Papua New Guinea and Fiji. Why Fiji? I'll explain that in a sec. The FLNKS invited the West Papuans to come as a delegation to the summit, the MSG summit, in uh, 2013 in Numia. And uh, they were given equal status in the plenary. They spoke. So you had Indonesia with its nameplate in front of it and the West Papua National Coalition for Liberation. The West Papua Coalition put forward a membership bid um, and that was deferred in 2013. Mission of Foreign Ministers went off to um, to Jakarta to discuss it because both PNG and Fiji have said that um, they recognise Indonesian sovereignty over the western half of the island of New Guinea. The Indonesians regarded as the provinces of Papua and West Papua. And PNG, like Australia, has long said we recognise Indonesian sovereignty and that's the mantra that they use. 
Fiji too in recent years has built links with Indonesia, particularly because of its global strategic interests. One of the things we've seen since 2009 is that Fiji has um, broadened its relationship with rapidly industrialising Asian countries. Korea, China, Taiwan and Indonesia. Fiji, under the Bainimarama regime, was building stronger links with uh, the emerging Asian nations. And so Fiji, for example, joined the non-aligned movement in 2011. Uh, In 2013, Fiji was made chair of the G77 plus China that's the block of developing countries. There's actually 132 of them. There used to be 72 in the, when it was founded. Now it's, you know, the, two-thirds of the UN General Assembly is a member of the G77. And Fiji, for the first time ever, was made chair. First time a Pacific Island country ever was made chair. So Fiji has that global strategic interest. And uh, Indonesia, as we know, was one of the founders of the non-aligned movement, a major player in the G77. So good relations between Fiji and Indonesia are part of the picture. And so in 2011, when Fiji hosted the MSG Summit, uh, Indonesia was given observer status and Indonesia's been pushing for greater involvement because they see that uh, links with PNG, business links particularly, and these strategic political links with Fiji give them an opening into the Pacific in competition with China, in competition with other uh, economic interests from Asia. And now West Papua, or the... United Liberation Movement of West Papua has that same observer status that Indonesia got two years ago. Yeah. What happened in in Solomons was was fascinating. The decision in 2014 by the MSG leaders was that the West Papua movement was disunited, fractious, had to come together in, in one united body. And it's true, there are different political tendencies within the West Papuan movement. It's a complex national movement, and not surprisingly, there are political differences, uh, different histories, different uh, traditions. Um, the Federal Republic of West Papua is one grouping, the West Papua National Coalition another, the West Papua Parliament, um, including KNPP, which has got a lot of student support and young people involved, a whole range of different groups. And they took up the challenge that came from the MSG leaders at their special meeting in 2014, which knocked back their membership application, and said, they said, go away and get united. So they did. It's a bit hard to get united when you're under military occupation, though, isn't and it? And indeed, and that's, you know, that's one, of the, one of the amazing features of this, that this is a very strong nationalist movement, and in spite of diverse political opinion about the best way forward, how do we do this, and so on, people did come together recognising that this was an important opening. So in December 2014, a meeting was held in Vanuatu, a country that's long supported West Papuan nationalist movement, um, under the auspices of the churches, but with the support of the Vanuatu government, and a, a United National Liberation Front was created called the United Liberation Movement of West Papua. And the United Liberation Movement included a, an executive board of five members, which includes people in exile, long-time campaigners like Rex Rumikek, uh, who's been traipsing the Pacific corridors for 40 years um, campaigning, but also people, uh, Benny Wender, who's a notable leader based in London at the moment, uh, living in exile, Octo Monte, a former journalism professor who's uh, based in Washington, as well as people living in exile in the, in the Pacific. Those exiled leaders, though, have very strong links with the movements within the country. Indeed, they were elected by a meeting of people within the country. And uh, at the meeting in Solomons, there was a large delegation of leaders who came from inside West Papua, 
um, and Papua to uh, participate. Uh, Edison Moromi, who's the Prime Minister, so-called, of the Federal Republic of West Papua, one of the major nationalist groups, came. Uh, I interviewed a number of the uh, customary leaders who came, um, members of what's called the Papua Diwanadat, which is the, the Council of Chiefs, essentially. These are customary landowners who have uh, um, status as customary leaders and have come together because of the loss of land. Um, it's a central issue for all Melanesian people. Their cultural, economic, social, spiritual ties to the land is under challenge as in- Indonesian migrants come in for these massive development projects. And so there was representation from... Uh, uh, the Papua Diwanadat at the meeting in, in Honiara. So there were no restrictions on people moving out to go to that meeting? There were significant restrictions and some people couldn't get there even though they wanted to travel. There was also repression by the Indonesian military as people protested um, when the United Liberation Movement in February this year submitted their, their bid for full membership. Um, having been told, go away and get united. Well, they did. And they came back with another application which was lodged in February and the ULM... Um, mobilised people in West Papua to show support. So there was a series of rallies um, around the country in the capital Jayapura but also in other places um, up in Wamana in the highlands and uh, other parts put down and so in the month leading up to the ULM nearly 500 people were arrested by the Indonesian police and military for protesting in support or rallying in support of uh, this bid for membership of the MSG. The politics were pretty clear though in the lead up to the Solomons, there are divisions within the MSG about how to deal with this question. The PNG and Fiji governments both said clearly before the meeting that they didn't support full membership. Vanuatu, historically, and the FLNKS have supported um, membership. And uh, the Solomon Islands, the fifth member of the MSG, sort of wavered between the great and powerful members, PNG, Fiji, of the group, and uh, the others. Uh, it was fascinating seeing... The fact that the other element in the room is, of course, public opinion across Melanesia. And there's a growing awareness of what's happening in West Papua. Um, when I lived in Fiji, you know, nearly 20 years ago, there were people campaigning around West Papua, but it just didn't have the public awareness and knowledge that it does today. And I was in Fiji um, before I travelled to the Solomon Islands. And, you know, all the NGOs have West Papuan flags hanging off their building. The Women's Crisis Centre, the main feminist organisation, had a huge banner in solidarity with West Papuan women in the lead-up to this, uh, critical of their own government, which is close to Indonesia. In PNG, in February this year, Prime Minister O'Neill gave, gave a major speech suggesting that PNG had to shift position because of public opinion, the growing awareness. And part of that's the Facebook generation. You now have citizen journalists in West Papua sending out pictures of Indonesian human rights atrocities, uh, Indonesian violations of human rights law. And um, that sort of information is percolating through Melanesia. It's been a, a fundamental shift. And we saw that in the Solomon Islands. Um, the days before the summit, some 800 or 1,000 people marched through the streets of Honiara with church leaders, women's leaders, many Solomon Islanders, waving Morning Star flags and calling for action by their leaders. And Solomon Islands Prime Minister, Manasa Sugabari, acknowledged that pressure, acknowledged that. There was a church vigil every night um, at St Barnabas Church. Uh, in my hotel where I was staying in Honiara, they had a sign of solidarity at the front desk. The, the hotel staff put up a, a Morning Star flag. You know, there was a lot of public opinion. And even... Fiji and PNG, who, who continue to support Indonesian sovereignty, recognise the strength of that growing opinion across Melanesia. 
And there's still a lot of solidarity in Australia, but it doesn't quite have the grip on policy that it does in Melanesia. And that's because Australia famously backs Indonesia's policy on this. You know, in 2013, Bob Carr, the then Labor Foreign Minister, went to Senate Estimates and said anyone who supports self-determination for West Papua is giving false hope to the people of West Papua. You know, West Papua will never have the right to determine its own political future. Three weeks later, the MSG in 2013 recognised the right to self-determination. Now, there are very close business ties between PNG and Indonesia, close and growing. Um, There's a common interest in building infrastructure. And what we saw at the MSG summit in Solomon Islands was many of the policies about trade, about infrastructure, about transport that the MSG has been adopting reflect this growing integration with the emerging Asian economies. So PNG agreed that they would fund a major study on developing an MSG regional airline and shipping service. And there are Indonesian business interests who want to promote shipping and transport connections from Indonesia into the Pacific, particularly PNG, Solomons, Fiji, the biggest economies. And so you're seeing a confluence of interests between business interests on both sides of the border, and PNG is really driving that. Uh, business interests in PNG are driving that connection. And, um, but it's not involving Australian capital. You know, PNG now has its oil and gas revenues, and so they have some resources to invest in these sorts of things. So this, is hap- this debate about human rights, about sovereignty, about self-determination, about economic integration is happening in a very detailed and complex way in the MSG, and it's not happening in the forum because Australia blocks the discussion. The forum hasn't had West Papua on the agenda since 2006. And Australia doesn't want the discussion to happen because of our ties with Jakarta. You've been listening to journalist and researcher Nick McClellan speaking about, well, about Melanesia and the Melanesian Spearhead Group summit meeting in the Solomon Islands a couple of weeks ago. We'll be hearing more from Nick next week, more about the deliberations of the summit, but also the possibility of a Melanesian free trade agreement, who might be the winners of that and who might be the losers. You're listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR, where the time is 4.40. Is a death cult nothing but a death cult? Islamist death cult. The Islamist death cult. Have a look cult. at Islam in death Australia. Death cult. All these mosques the being built. Flag. This All is the a funds. death cult. To use this All term the money is to they dignify make. a death cult. These are the two enemies we're fighting the communist left and Islam, because the two are hand in hand. You mean Abbott and Reclaim Australia's anti-Muslim racism go hand in hand? Yeah, and do you know that Reclaim Australia and the United Patriots Front are organising an anti-Muslim rally on Saturday the 18th of July at Parliament House, Melbourne? That's why the campaign against racism and fascism is organising a counter-rally. We're meeting at Parliament House at 10 o'clock So we can get there first, take the steps first and show them that their anti-Muslim hate speech is not welcome in Melbourne or anywhere around Australia. Not now, not ever. If you want updates on the campaign, text subscribe to 0422-726-843 to join the updates list. The campaign against racism and fascism is a 3CR supporter. Early this morning I rang veteran peace activist and nomad Graham Dunstan, 
who were standing in the sun outside their court building in Rockhampton, Queensland. Why? He was there with many other supporting Christian peace activists facing court for entry into the out-of-bounds area where exercises of talisman sabre are taking place. While waiting for the decision outside the court, I asked Graham what has been happening in Rockhampton over the past week to protest against talisman sabre. How can I say? Making peace visible in a time of perpetual war. So I've not only been organising direct actions against militarism, like uh, invasions of the, um, the military exercise area, we've organised vigils, parades, concerts, and the screening of David Bradbury's latest movie, War on Trial, which documents the trial, the ploughshare trial of 2013. Here in Rockhampton. How many activists do you believe are, are in Rockhampton, Graham? I would say we would number about 20, maybe 25. That would be pushing it. We very rarely assemble as one group because people have been arriving and then doing their particular action and going off again, you know. There are 15 peace pilgrims, for example. And what's a peace pilgrim? These are people who um, trespass intentionally in the military exercise, the Shoalwater military exercise, as an expression of their faith and as a spiritual journey. So they go in small teams, early hours of the morning, get past the police, <laughs> get into the zone, treat it as a spiritual walk, a wilderness walk, and then it leads to encounter with the military, arrest, and then the court trial, the, the court. So right now I'm, I'm outside the Rockhampton Magistrate Court and uh, we're Banner array and uh, flags look splendid in the morning sun here. And into the court are three Quaker grannies <laughs> who yesterday were arrested for blockading a gate, but they blockaded it dressed in Quaker bonnets from the 19th century <laughs> and with a table, a picnic table set out with lamingtons and scones and tea to offer the military and start parley for peace. <laughs> anyway, they've spent the night in jail. They were joined there during the night by um, another team of um, peace pilgrims. That team included Margaret Pistorius, who's the widow of Brian Law, uh, the hero of the helicopter, Tiger helicopter strike. She was arrested late up yesterday afternoon. She'd been on the area for more, almost two days. 48 hours. What do they get charged with? Depending on what they do, <laughs> but it's usually just trespass. The magistrate's been a bit severe, $500 fines. So people take this in their stride. So this is the cost of wasting pieces of time and getting notice. That's what we do. And what sort of reception are you getting in the, the town itself? In Rockhampton? Yes. Well, how do you judge this? We get an occasional wave here. You know, this is, of course, in the main street of Rockhampton, East Street, and um, the traffic queue in front of the courthouse to turn onto the bridge that crosses the main arterial crossing the, the road. So we get a lot of smiles and recognition. We also get these dumb looks. <laughs> but I say, most people are asleep most of the time. Any little wake-up is a boon. Are there army barracks in Rockhampton itself? 
Yes, they are, but they're kind of occasional barracks. They're called Western Street Barracks, and they adjoin the airport in Rockhampton. So this, during Talisman Sabre season, this gets ramped up as a major supply area, and Black Hawk helicopters buzzing in to refuel and things like this. It's a huge area. But most of the troops are on the exercise area itself, which is about 80 kilometres away from here, a bit remote. And uh, last Monday, the exercise, last Tuesday, the exercises began with an airdrop of um, 400 US Marines who had flown from Alaska. <laughs> it, talk about environment. What a waste of fuel this is. <laughs> and most of the exercise, the with them, the Talisman Sabre exercise, is conducted off-season and coordinated with other, like, for example, the amphibious landing happened in Darwin as part of this exercise. And there are various things, if you follow on the web, they're doing small things all around. So we estimate there are about 5,000 troops, and maybe that's an exaggeration, because for all the, the build-up of this Western Street barracks, there isn't a lot of business happening there. It's not as if they're supplying thousands and thousands of people from that barracks. So that's what's happening. They, they promise economic recovery, military spending uh, will be a boon to the district, but this is another military lie. It's not going to happen. It's unlikely that there will be any leave, soldiers going on leave into Rockhampton while we peace processes are about. They're a bit concerned about their PR, that we might use that opportunity to draw attention to the US alliance. And, you know, the sexual violence that um, hosting US bases brings. Tell us about the Japanese peace activist who's come from Okinawa. What has she been talking about? Well, first of all, great honour. She was, she's the international president of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, and this it's centenary year. She came to Australia, and, you know, talk, talk about time poor. She was rushing out. She came to Rockhampton for just one day, last Saturday, and flew out to Okinawa on Sunday to get back, back at a desk on Monday to be teaching again. She is an, an extraordinary woman had been part of a delegation of women, that an international delegation of women that had intruded in the, into the demilitarized zone in Korea only, what, six weeks ago to make the point that they want peace, they want the, the countries unified. So she's brave and outspoken and wonderful scholar. And the news is, of course, or, that the Okinawans don't want the bases Neither do the, the Japanese government. Okinawans don't see themselves as Japanese. And, but the Japanese don't want the bases on Japanese mainland, right? So that they've got all these bases. And the stats, are, I can't recall them now, are horrendous. The amount of land that the U.S. military has um, uh, occupied and these negotiations have been going on for some time to get the Marines out of there and all the time they are deceived. They, they get news that a base is going to be closed. There are something like six or eight base, different bases. They get news that a base is being closed down only to learn that it's just going to be, another one's going to be rebuilt, replaced. <laughs> it goes on and on. But the big campaign that she ran and the one that went international was about sexual violence. A very successful campaign. It took off on the mainland as well and went international. And this was the story because, you know, it's a shame for the women. 
sexually assaulted, sexually assaulted, and same in Australia, same Western countries. Women don't want to report it, but this one, this particular case was a 12-year-old who'd been gang-raped by U.S. servicemen, and she decided she'd take a stand. And with that support, a major campaign was run. So I had to, my it was gratitude to Professor Kose Akibayashi coming to Australia because the only thing, you know, it seems to me, the only resistance we've got to building more US bases is the conscience, the awareness of women, Australian women, that this inevitably means an increase in violence against women, sexual violence against women. It comes with the uniform. We're dealing with some US soldiers who have been in wars all around the planet, stressed out, PTSD, crazy men getting let loose on civilian populations and in which are practically unaccountable. For example, you know that it's called the Status of Forces Agreement. It's the laws which US soldiers sign up to obey while they're in a foreign country. Well, we have a Status of Forces Agreement that was reviewed um, in 2000. When, you know when the Marines first arrived? Was that 2011? I think so. It was modified and kept secret. The Labor government and the Liberal government are actually refusing to tell the people what they've signed up for in terms of the accountability of US soldiers when they're in Australia, under Australian law. But the typical practice is, and it happened already, that when a charge is made, that soldier is sent off, sure, as fast as possible. They get him out of the country to make it difficult for any prosecution. That's how they behave. Totally arrogant. Why, why wouldn't they be arrogant? You know, they're a world power. We're a vassal state. We just have to do what they want us to do. And there's already been trouble in Darwin, hasn't there? Yeah, yeah, there's, there's been a case up there of rape. For, this was a Navy man, not a Marine in that case. And there'll be more, which is it's just the way it is. US bases, that's what they spell. Not only do they you know, threaten our national security, they also bring violence uh, to the civilian population. Tell me what you've been doing to the poor bulls in Rockhampton. <laughs> That was an initiative of uh, Robin Torbenfeld, the, the crew that came up from um, Friends of the Earth in Brisbane. There's a standing joke about Rockhampton. <laughs> Beat capital of Australia, they say, what's between the hind legs of a bull? Or bulls? What is between the hind legs of bulls? And the answer is Rockhampton. <laughs> because they have statues at the entrance to the city at both ends of the Bruce Highway, north and south, when you come into Rockham. But there's just the beginning of the iconic bull statues that are all around the city, you know, erected on awnings, things like this. So this crew, they went around and they decorated the bulls and aiming to make a peaceable <laughs> Rockhampton, uh, put medallions, C&D, peace symbol medallions around their, their necks and things like that. How long did they last there? It's still there. It's still there. Get out. It's not as if there's a you know a crew of people keeping the bulls party in Rockhampton. This city is broke, <laughs> like most provincial cities in Australia. It's stretched for funds. Just for a few minutes, Graham, can you talk a bit about David Bradbury's film? You just mentioned it earlier. Well, 
what can I say about it? It's about me. <laughs> it's about my role in the, the trial, the Plowshare trial. So it's, for me, very confronting because, you know, to give the background, Brian Law undertook this um, Plowshare action Tell us in 2011 where he entered the um, Western Barracks, the airport airstrip, on his tricycle, wearing his bobcatter hat and a suit, and pedalled across um, the tarmac, carrying a, um, a garden mattock in the, the tray of the, um, the tricycle, got to a Tiger attack helicopter. Initial intention was to see if he could hit a U.S. helicopter, and there was one standing by, but this one turned out to be closer, but it's, and the best target. It was brand new. It had just been flown up from where it's just being assembled under licence in um, Brisbane, $45 million worth, and he hit it with one blow and caused $160,000 worth of damage. <laughs> anyway, I was the guy that helped him get there. I was the accomplice. I opened the gate for him, as I said. Before he came to trial, Brian died, so I was left to carry the court case that Brian had been you know, eager to do. I wasn't too eager about getting up and court business is not mine, so it fell on my shoulders. So David Bradbury came up for the trial and documented lots of interviews with me and other people associated with the trial. The most common response that came back to me from people who shared this packed house at the Rockhampton Library was that it was powerful. It was a powerfully moving, emotionally moving movie. I guess this is because of the rawness of the emotions, like, you know, all the tensions are there documented over the three days, you know, the troubles, the, um, <laughs> the tensions, the sorrows, and this dialogue with my daughter who'd come up to support me, bringing her daughter, so I had my daughter and granddaughter with me on the trial and she confronts me with the question have do you when you do these things do you think you're a family you know when you, you know, take on the, the possibility of being in jail for 10 years do you think this you'll understand that this means that the grandchildren your grandchildren won't have a grandfather I am so you know the response to this question I am so defensive because truth is I'd never given this a thought. I'd never thought of the consequences for my family with this action. But uh, in the end, it's the family, it's grandchildren you do these kind of things for. You know, we don't yes, but it takes responsibility in this generation, this time, to stop wars which kind of in, could, will engulf our grandchildren. Anyway, all that dialogue is there. If you want an emotionally moving experience and to understand the, the depth of um, feeling behind these actions uh, let me recommend David Bradbury's movie, it's really well made, you know, beautifully cut deeply moving, that's all I can say And as you said earlier Brian's widow Margaret is carrying on the good fight She's in court this morning Yes She's been 48 hours there on Talisman Sabre, leading a, um, a peace pilgrimage How do you believe the atmosphere compares to previous years, Graeme? You've been going there for a little while now. I notice that we are fewer but more fervent. This peace pilgrimage uh, project has taken off. I mean, in last Talisman Sabre 2013, there were only two of us who went on as peace pilgrimage. This year, 15. And this parallels what's happening with the refugee 
issue, Love Finds a Way project, where Christian leaders, that, that we, we're talking about ministers and pastors entering the offices of pol politicians, local politicians, and refusing to move and getting themselves arrested to make their point. On one sense, there doesn't seem to be a lot of action on refugee issues. There's no you know, big movement, and yet there's this very strong movement with happening within the churches. The moral leadership of our community is taking action and becoming visible. So this is a sign of the future. So this is what I would say is also happening with Tells and Sabre. Uh, the first crew to go on through the Peace Pilgrims were the Reverend Simon Moles of the Grace Tree Baptist Church in Coburg, Simon Rees, who's a pastor uh, in a church, uniting church in um, Geelong, and Quaker Greg Rolls has been the, the coordinator of this. They are being visible as, uh, how can I say, as Christians in this, you know, standing up, reflecting back to the people, their Christian faith, which is the significance of this court case happening this morning and the media interest in it. It sure gets noticed. Have the three men also been to court? Yeah, $500 fines, yeah. It's all good. They're on their way home now, the, the two Simons. But the other thing to say is that, you know... There was a much bigger local movement, Defence of Shoalwater Bay, back in 2005 and 2007 that seems to have evaporated, you know, when I came back to see if we can get some the Yapoon Peace Parade and concert, which happened last Sunday, get that organised. I found that my friends, the local people, said, oh, welcome back, Graham. Good to see you again. What are you doing for Tell Us and Save? I said, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, actually, I'm going to be away. <laughs> like, none of the local people had planned anything in anticipation of the Tell Us and Save returning to Rockhampton. So it fell to us outsiders to get it moving again. And we had a good parade. But it could have been much bigger if we'd had more local preparation. How much longer will you be staying there? Well, at least until the Talisman Sabre war rehearsal's finished, which is on the 18th. Uh, and then I'll you know, hang around a few days, wind up the business, go and see friends I won't be seeing for another couple of years. Head off north, follow the sun. I think no, out of the table there. <laughs> this nomad is drawn north. How's the bus going? Good question. <laughs> I've been having trouble with the starter motor. And here I am, parked in the main street of... Rockhampton, and it's not starting <laughs> again. <laughs> I've, had, I've had auto electrics on this. I've been towed by the RACQ. It just has a mind of its own. This, <laughs> but I'll sort it out today. But that's part of being a nomad: maintenance, keeping the mechanics turning. And what keeps you going? What keeps me turning? Mm. Well, what's your maintenance? Much of my maintenance. Well, one of the joys of Rockhampton is the Fitzroy River in the morning. Rockhampton's a river port, much like Lismore, I suppose. So the city's backed up against uh, the river where there used to be active warehouses and things. And the port area is a reserve in which I can sit in my van, in the doorway of my van, and get the sunrise coming up over the river, over Mount Archer, which is to the east and get a double reflection of light. And there I do my meditation and yoga in the morning, and it's absolute bliss. So there's something about sitting by rivers that is a, uh, good for the soul, <laughs> good for the, the body, good for the fluids, I think. The, the waters talk to each other. 
and um, to act the boon of having an easterly aspect and sun coming out over water. Lots of bird life. It's a, a remarkable route. Lots of fish. So, and my, so this is my spiritual practice. This is how I live my life. And my peace activism is, uh, is the, the grid, as it were, how I test my practice, you know. I could go off and be a monk sitting on a mountaintop, maybe. But I think it's much more challenging to be in the middle of social movement and um, calm, detached, helpful, humble. And what's the fruit of this? Well, I have lots of friends <laughs> wherever I travel along. There are people welcoming into their house, into their homes, um, into their communities, into their companionship. And I think this is, this is the way peace grows, uh, you know, the way war happens is an hysteria is beaten up by angry and deluded people and greedy people wanting to spend money on armaments rather than welfare. The way peace happens is just the opposite. That is, it's very gentle. It's like the tide coming in. Hardly noticeable, but powerful. Thank you for being there. Thank you. Thank you for listening to me. Okay, Graham. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's peace activist Graeme Dunstan talking to me this morning from Rockhampton. Finally on Tuesday Home Time, historian and author Brian McKinlay. And the topic today... The topic is the destruction of Libya. Jen, in recent years, and in fact this year especially, we've been seeing on the television and the radio to some degree, hearing it, of this extraordinary flow of refugees from various parts of black, I'll use that word, black Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, into southern Europe, mostly into Italy and mostly to Sicily, from what I'd now call the failed state of Libya. It's an extraordinary event, and I don't think it's had as much publicity in Australia as it deserves. This year alone, it's estimated, with half the year gone, that about 180,000 people have crossed. We don't know how many have died, but 180,000 people have lived and crossed the narrow straits between Libya and Italy, Sicily, Malta, and made their way into those places from places as far away as the Sudan or Eritrea or Somalia, all of them ruined state, uh, and used Libya as a conduit to escape into Europe in a, a, an array of flimsy craft. And one must say that the Italian government has shown a good deal of compassion, more than you'd get from some of our politicians here, and has basically coped with this flood of people, provided clothing, medical supplies, food, because many of them are destitute in every sense of the word. We know from what you see on the television, if you watch Al Jazeera or the BBC late at night, as I do, uh, you'll see these wretched people being rescued, sometimes literally from the water. Children, particularly little ones. The other night we saw a program in which about 50,000 people were shown to have being now living in camps set up by the Italian government around Rome alone. And it's happening in other Italian cities. 
many of them, of course, finish up in what are really shanty towns, living in discarded factories and derelict buildings in many of the Italian cities. The Italian government, for health reasons, has been moving these people out of such accommodation into tents where they've got access to toilets and running water and so on. And it must be said, too, that the Vatican has done, through its body called Caritas Christi, a Catholic relief organisation, a bit like Medicines on Frontiers, and they've provided doctors and medical advice and food uh, in Rome and elsewhere. We should remember that what we're seeing across the Mediterranean is due to a number of factors. It's also part of a, a worldwide movement in which refugees, war victims, and simply the poor and mostly young men are seeking to flee poverty, and who can blame them? to the rich west and, and other countries to look at the mediterranean i've been to spain a number of times and in southern spain it's almost a, a order of the day to read of boatloads of young men being washed up on the beaches of southern spain from morocco many of them are not moroccans they make their way to morocco from countries further south a similar trend is taking place in west africa where they try to make their way across the atlantic a desperate journey of some hundreds of miles to the spanish-owned canary islands which are in normal times a tourist resort of course the wars in iraq and the continuing wars in syria have generated another flow which passes into Turkey and into Greece. And so the entire southern Mediterranean from Spain to Greece, uh, including mostly Italy, are being affected by this flood of boat people, if we can call them that, because of the narrowness of the straits in many places between Tunisia and Libya and Italy. It's quite possible to do the journey in a day or two. This is not as long as the journey boat people have done from Indonesia into Australia. In the Mediterranean if you are lucky enough, if that's quite the word, to make the journey in fine weather is not as dangerous as, say, the Indian Ocean, although it's dangerous enough if you can't swim. Now, the Italian government, by the way, is appealing to the European community for help. And indeed, many of these people do flow on into countries like France, which is a target in many cases. Uh, many of them finish up in Germany, and many of them try to make the crossing illegally through the channel into Britain. So it's becoming a major problem for the entire European community. But a, a similar patterns are being repeated elsewhere. For instance, daily, and I know this from some personal experience of visiting the United States, a flood of Hispanics, mostly Mexicans, but not a wall, make their way through the terrible deserts along the Rio Grande into California and New Mexico and um, Arizona in the United States. I've stayed in Arizona in, in a place called Flagstaff and also in twice in recent times in San Diego, the, the flood of people is quite extraordinary. Young men, strong young men, I think, would have to be the ones, actually tried to swim from the Mexican border around out to sea and then get carried back onto some Californian beach. And, of course, the unlucky ones are washed up dead on the beaches of around San Diego 
which is really in many ways a Hispanic city, although it's part of the United States. San Diego is right on the Mexican border. You can go by local tram down to the Mexican border where there's an excellent market every day of Mexican people who are allowed legally to cross into the United States and sell their produce in this beautiful market, a place called San Isidore, selling everything from fresh food to handicrafts and artworks and so on. Beautiful stuff, I might tell you. But all of this is part of this worldwide pattern. And this week we've seen maddies like Donald Trump attacking the Mexican government for quite... Well, he's lying when he says that the Mexican government is exporting its criminal problems by sending Mexicans out of jail and so on across the border to get rid of them. That's absolutely untrue. But Trump is trying to make himself the candidate for a certain racist white section of the Republican Party. And oddly enough, he and his friends have some basis not for saying the things about the Mexican government, but their anxieties have some basis because a recent census in the United States showed that if you look at children under five, almost half of the children born in the last five years in the United States are Hispanic. Now, the Hispanics have large families. They're mostly young immigrants. And if they can, they come across, obviously, as couples and families. Los Angeles, for instance, has an Hispanic mayor who came from behind to beat candidates from the two major parties. If you look at the United States now, you find that Hispanics number those who are, in a way, entitled to vote, and that's what counts in the end, 25 million, roughly the population of Scandinavia. This enormous block of people is growing daily in the United States, and for the first time, we are likely to see, well, in the lifetime of people living now, my children, we're likely to see a time in the United States population, a majority of people are either Hispanic, Asian, and black, who make up about 12 or 13%. So you have well over 30% of Americans at this moment who are not what you'd call the old European white stock. And this will have real demographic changes. Whole towns in California now have a Hispanic majority and you're getting local politicians elected. And the Hispanics come from a country riddled by right-wing politics and a pretty well-organised radical left in Mexico. And most of these people are poor and attracted to that. They are pretty well versed in politics. In some institutions in the United States, they've virtually flooded into them and taken them over. In the southwestern states and California, the Hispanics have taken over the trade unions and, and, oddly enough, large sections of the Catholic Church, which, I must say, has a pretty good record of helping them. And so all these institutions are being Hispanicised, if I can use the word. Now, what we're seeing in the Mediterranean, and I've wandered a bit from the topic, uh, is really part of this worldwide pattern. And so in this country, when people go on about the boat people, it's as if it was a problem in isolation, where in fact, if it's a problem at all, it's a very minor one. Before I go on to look at what I've called the destruction of Libya, I'll give a very brief historical rundown of what Libya is and was. Uh, Libya is a very ancient society. It's mentioned in the New Testament. 
it goes back to Roman and beyond that. The population mix of Libya was and is made up of three groups. The original Berbers, who are a, a more dark-skinned people and with very tight, I'd use the word crinkly, sort of curly hair, as distinct from the Arab inhabitants who came in the 8th to 9th century, part of a wave of Arab conquests in North Africa, intermixed with blacks from sub-Saharan Africa, who were often brought to Libya just as slaves and finished up as slaves in Roman households. Now, in many cases, the blacks intermarried, or indeed, if they didn't intermarry, black women slaves were very likely impregnated by their white masters. When I say white, I mean Roman or Greek or Ottoman Turks. So you produce kids who were naturally uh, of a different colour to their parents. Uh, so in Libya you see a lot of people who are quite negroid, if I can use that word, in their physical appearances. I've been to Libya a number of times and I remember my surprise on meeting a, at, a, at a function on my first visit there in 78, a, a prominent, very senior man from the Libyan Foreign Ministry, and he was quite black. But it's quite common to see husband and wives, children in Libya, who are all of mixed race. So that thing about Libya is quite interesting. But the immigrants flowing into Libya are coming not from Libya, but from other parts of Africa. Libya is a country with a very narrow coastal shelf of cultivated land around Tripoli and a larger area in, near Benghazi. And just north of Benghazi, there's a very rugged area of mountains called the Green Mountains, a bit like the Blue Mountains, if I could Australian comparison. Rugged, much of it uninhabited, and oddly enough, in the winter, the Green Mountains, if it's a very cold winter in Europe, they'll even get snow, which you don't associate with North Africa. Um, and it's close to the big city of Benghazi. Libya doesn't have a single permanent water source. There's not a river in the whole country that runs all the year. There are small rivers called wadis in Arabic, but these are mostly in the mountains around Benghazi. Around Tripoli, it's more a Mediterranean climate. Well, it's all Mediterranean, but it's a flatter climate with lots of olives and um, dates, the fruits and vegetables that grow in that Mediterranean climate. But the coastal shelf is quite small, perhaps no more than 15 or 20 miles wide. And when you get in a bit further, you suddenly come into what's the beginning of the Sahara Desert, which takes up more than 90%. Two things that changed Libya in modern times was the finding of great deposits of oil in the sub-Saharan African area. And so isolated towns have become very major oil-producing cities, and the oil is carried by pipeline to the coast. The other thing was one of Gaddafi's great triumphs, the building of what was called the Great Water Scheme. The finding of artesian water, a bit like Australia really, in the deserts, which was more valuable than oil, amazingly, and this was piped in a great scheme that carried water to Benghazi and Tripoli and other smaller towns. This ended a, a permanent Libyan problem of, of, of a shortage of water in its whole history, Going back to the Romans, Libya's population and its growth was limited by the shortage. Rainfall only falls along the coast in the winter. You get seven or eight months of very hot, searingly hot summers, and people would try and find underground water. 
and would have basins under their houses in which whatever rain fell was stored. But uh, Gaddafi ended this with abundance of good water from the, uh, the interior. I had the idea that that pipeline hadn't been completed before he was murdered. Oh no, no, it was it was running. Uh, some sections of it were destroyed, have had to be rebuilt if they've been rebuilt. But no, the water has been running for some years. What I think you may be thinking of, Jan, his other great scheme was to build a modern railway linking Tunisia and Egypt along the Libyan coast. Libya has no railways. And that scheme on which billions had been spent and was very close to operation and allowing a railway then from Cairo all the way to Casablanca in Morocco, that has been completely destroyed in the sense that nothing has been done for three or four years. They'd actually got some of the first railway coaches and diesels from Italy. So that marvellous scheme is probably never going to be seen. And like so much of Libya, the ruins of other great projects going back to the Romans are there. Libya has some marvellous Roman ruins, by the way. Quite near Tripoli, there are several Roman cities, which because of the climate have been wonderfully preserved. And uh, several of them would compare with anything in Europe. The modern history of Libya begins with tragedy too. In 1912, Italy, along with other countries, several other countries, went to war with the old Turkish Empire, and Libya seized some islands, some Greek islands that Turkey owned, and also Libya from the Turks. And uh, then from 1912 onwards, it was an Italian colony. It has a distinction in history shared with no other country that the Italian army at the time had a few aeroplanes. And they sent them to Libya. They captured Tripoli to begin with and used a bit of flat land to land these old-fashioned biplanes. These were sent to Libya and some enterprising Italian general had the idea of having a, a second person in the plane and drop bombs by hand on the Turks. And so Libya can claim the dubious distinction of being the country where air warfare was invented. That was no great help to the Libyan people who now endured Italian colonialism. And in the 1920s, when fascism came to Italy and Mussolini took over for 20 years, Libya became a fascist colony. There was an uprising led by a teacher, actually, a man called Omar Mukhtar in the 1920s in the mountains around Benghazi, which spread across the country and very nearly defeated the Italians. It was a remarkably courageous effort by the Libyans. But in the end, they were suppressed brutally by Mussolini. Omar Mukhtar was captured and hanged in Benghazi publicly, uh, and the population was forced to watch. He is one of the great heroes. And the next disaster to befall Libya was World War II, And Australians know it through the names of those battlefields where many Australians died in the battle against the Italian fascists and the Germans, the the Nazis. Uh, Cities like Tobruk, of course, are famous even today for Australians who've never been there. And many smaller towns like Bardia and Derna were also scenes of battles, and many Australians are buried there. After the war, Libya was in terrible state, poverty-stricken, and virtually a British colony, because the British had um, liberated Libya with their allies from Italian fascism, and nobody much knew what to do with Libya because it was such a poor country. 
But, of course, in the 50s and 60s, the first modest developments of oil were found. And nobody knew how vast was the oil wealth. But by 1968-69, Libya had become potentially a very wealthy country, like some of the Gulf states. The king of Libya, Idris, the only king, really, uh, whom the British had put on the throne and was a puppet, really, Idris was overthrown by a revolution in 1969 led by a group of military officers angry at his support for Israel in the 67 war. Led by these military officers, Libya became a republic. And out of that emerged Gaddafi as the leading figure until his death a couple of years ago. He was murdered, of course, in the uprising that Britain and France and the United States aided to bring him down. The odd thing was, like so much Western policy in the Middle East, it was ill thought out and absolutely stupid. In his last years, Gaddafi didn't like fundamentalist Islam. He was a bitter critic of them. Uh, he was no great devotee of Islam himself. Uh, women, for instance, were pretty well liberated. Many young women wore a headscarf, but quite modern dress. A lot of women occupied various positions in the government. Gaddafi was opposed to polygamy, which is still common in some parts of the Arab world. All of this was Gaddafi's attempt to turn Libya into a modern, almost European country. And given the oil wealth, the money was spent on things like education and health and roads. I suppose nowhere else on the entire continent of Africa is there a country as rich, potentially, as Libya. But that didn't suit people in, in powerful positions in the West. And three or four years ago, when there began in Egypt what was called the Arab Spring, at least it began in Tunisia, next door to Libya. The effect of that in Libya was a demand by some people for reform, whatever they meant by that. And it led to demonstrations. If Gaddafi had gone along, perhaps, with some of those demands, he might have headed them off. But he was the strong man, and uh, he'd been in power for nearly 40 years and his sons likewise for a long period. That was his first tactical error. Uh, in the years just before that, Gaddafi, we tend to forget, had been visited by no less a person than Tony Blair. Uh, there was a genuine feeling that in the West that they could work with Gaddafi. Well, that didn't happen. The uprising gained especially the support of the French, Sarkozy, and uh, several European powers, the British among them and Gaddafi was overthrown in a struggle that took about two years and wrought terrible havoc on the infrastructure of Libya. Uh, the Americans, of course, bombed Tripoli and Benghazi, and in the end, Gaddafi was murdered, and his military force was overwhelmed with um, aid from places as far away as Qatar. The overthrow of the Gaddafi regime was achieved by armed gangs, there's no other way to describe them. There was no single unified opposition. And when his regime fell, all of these groups contended for power. And for the last two or three years, Tripoli and Benghazi have been the scenes of literally daily battles between these armed gangs uh, who attempted to seize buildings. In fact, on one occasion recently, they seized the parliament in Tripoli and took many of the members of the parliament prisoner. Uh, this chaotic situation has led, among other things, to the refusal of airlines to fly into Tripoli and Benghazi. 
and I was shocked at a piece on the BBC recently which showed that the splendid airport built 20 years ago and modernised in Tripoli is in ruins. You couldn't run an air service. The only way into Libya is to cross by road from Egypt or Tunisia to the big cities of Benghazi on the eastern side or Tripoli on the western side. They're quite a long way apart. I think about 1,200 kilometres apart. And uh, that it would be a very hazardous operation because you would never know what the towns along your route, what gang was in control of the towns. And you might be held captive or killed or whatever. The whole situation in Libya is now so chaotic that even the oil industry has begun to collapse. Worse still, fundamentalist Islamic groups from ISIS coming from Syria and Iraq have set up camp in Libya and a few months ago beheaded 12 Libyan Christians, a small Christian population in Libya. This sort of atrocity has become common. Libya has ceased to exist. What remains of the Libyan government, if you can call it that, has fled to Tobruk and operate on a daily basis in one of the smaller cities. Benghazi and uh, Tripoli have been the scene of almost daily battles. There has been recently in Morocco a conference of several of these contending groups, but of course it's almost impossible to do anything with them. They all have demands, they've all got armed men in, you may have seen them on the news, little converted trucks with a gun on the back, an anti-aircraft gun in those cases, and half a dozen men in the truck with, all, with modern weapons. Gaddafi had lots of modern weapons for his army. And they roam the streets, engaging in fighting, seizing buildings, generally bringing the country to ruin. Uh, that's why I've called this program the destruction of Libya. Now, out of this has come this flood of people from black Africa. Because if you've got the money, and if you're a young man and pretty desperate, and make your way across Central Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, to the Mediterranean coast of Libya, you'll find someone there with a boat. People make that hazardous crossing, hoping, of course, that the Italian Navy, which patrols the waters, will pick them up somewhere along the way to Italy. This is an, an almost irresolvable problem. What to do with the chaos in Libya? And it all goes directly back to those Western nations which threw themselves on the side of the rebels at the beginning of the Arab Spring and hoped to bring down Gaddafi for no better reason than Gaddafi had always been a thorn in the American side and the French and the British. He put a lot of money into sub-Saharan Africa, oil money, and set up a block which they didn't like a bit. He had his enormous problems. He had faults and, and, and committed all sorts of uh, unpleasant acts in his country. But a great deal of money was spent on development, on health and education, and all of that has collapsed, including, I might add, uh, an excellent university system which drew on foreign lecturers and teachers, some of which in the early period went here from Australia. Tertiary education, in fact, most education, has virtually ceased. The same has happened to the hospitals. Libya had a free health scheme. Any Libyan could get access to a hospital. If they were really needed critical care, they could be flown free of charge by the airline to hospitals in Europe. And that was quite common for major ailments. All of that ceased. And it's um, 
Brian McKinlay, who's a researcher and author, speaking about the, I called it the demise of Libya, but it's a lot worse than that. That's all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at four o'clock.